Redemption Acadia. My name is Kanu Jacobson, and our scripture reading for today is from John 3, verses 22 through 30. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Annan near Salem because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, and the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. This is the word of the Lord. Well, you heard the reading from Canoe today. It's out of John chapter 3. And the very end of that paragraph, John the Baptist says, He must increase, Jesus must increase, and I must decrease. So, what we're going to talk about today on Easter is this notion. Seek, desire, and pursue smallness. Seek, desire, and pursue smallness. That's an odd title for a sermon, and I think it's an even odder notion. I don't think this would make a very popular leadership conference, right? Not a lot of people would flock to a leadership conference about how to be small. In fact, if you're From my generation, it kind of sounds more like a Steve Martin comedy bit. Hey, let's get small. Obviously, we're talking spiritually and metaphorically and philosophically, but even so, this is definitely not a popular notion. The world we live in clearly seeks something other than smallness. It seeks desires and pursues big. We we want big. We want to be big in this world. We want big power, we want big status, we want big influence, we want big economic prowess, we want big pleasure. We like big and loud and renowned. And I would argue that even in the American Christian church, it's pretty much the same thing. There are so many leaders in the American Christian church who are bent toward big, big numbers, big budgets, big influence, big book deals, big attractions. It's more about the attraction than about who Jesus is and who we are in relationship to Jesus. There's only one thing that I think we tend to seek and desire to be small in, and that would be suffering, inconvenience, and discomfort. And I know I said only one thing, but all three of those things are essentially the same thing for us. We want smallness when it comes to any sort of misery, any sort of challenge, any sort of tribulation. And we really do have it backwards. The constant pursuit of big that, that is always shown to never fulfill us in the way that we think it, it will, it leads us ultimately 
to frustration and disappointment and fatigue. So there's this guy in the Bible. I've already mentioned him. Most people do know him as John the Baptist. He's not the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, but he's one of the persons in the Gospel of John. But he knew a better way. And we just heard it in that reading from Canoe. He understood where true life and true fulfillment actually comes from. He is the one person who has shown us, if we'd only listen, that in smallness, in simple, and in humility, we can find the secret to life. I'm going to look at three paragraphs out of the Gospel of John today. One of them is that paragraph that Canoe read for us. But we're going to start, actually, at the end of the Gospel of John in John chapter 20. So you can pause the video now and turn there if you would like. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read each paragraph, and then I'm going to give you what I think the big idea is of each paragraph, and then we'll talk about each paragraph a little bit, sort of unpack it, and then we're going to tie it all together. And it's going to be this message that's going to direct us towards the importance of smallness. And so I'm showing my cards right away, right out of the gate. These three paragraphs point us to Jesus and who he is and how he must increase and we need to decrease because he's the savior of the world. And he is, he is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He's everything. And he is the one thing, the only thing that is legitimately big and fulfilling in the universe. And that's Jesus. So, John chapter 20, that first paragraph, uh, chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Let me read through it. This is after the crucifixion now, three days after. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple, the one who happens to be writing this gospel, I think ironically, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping in to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go into the tomb. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed." For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So this is Easter. This is the Easter message. This is the resurrection. And and I think it's interesting. A, A lot of people, I've had a lot of people tell me in the past, especially around Easter time, man, you Christians are really hung up on the resurrection. What is the deal? Yes, guilty as charged. We're hung up on the resurrection because if there's no resurrection, there is no life. If there's no resurrection, there is no point to any of this. Uh, Paul even says as much in his first letter to the church in Corinth in chapter 15. He says, if there's no resurrection, our faith is futile. We might as well just go home and, and live for ourselves and forget about it and live big. 
but there is a resurrection, and that changes everything. And one of the things that we need to understand about the resurrection is that it's not that Jesus didn't die. It's not that he was in a coma or just weakened and he appeared died. But no, Jesus actually died. But what the resurrection proves is that the death cannot hold Jesus. That that Jesus has victory over death. He's the only one who has victory over death. And therefore, it's important for us to be with Jesus, to be a part of that resurrection so we can share in that resurrection so that victory does not have ultimate I'm sorry, so that death does not have ultimate victory over us as well. That's why the resurrection is so important. It's not critical, it's essential. The resurrection is very important. So guilty is charged. We're hung up on the resurrection. And thank God we are, because it's critical, it's essential. Now, the big idea of this paragraph, as I see it in this light, is this. Besides the fact that the tomb is empty... What has happened to Peter and John here, and what's going to happen to uh, the others as they come to see the empty tomb, is that their script has been altered, but their script has been altered in a good way. Um, One of the things that I enjoy doing is is reading a lot of uh, research and understanding human nature and how we look at the world and how we understand our lives, and one of the things that we all do, every one of us does, across culture, is that across all cultures, is that we live our lives by scripts. We have scripts for our lives. Some people, you, you might say, well, those are plans. Yeah, they're plans, but they're scripts. Scripts meaning this is how we think things are going to go. This is how we would like things to go. This is how we think um, not only what we might call macro scripts, like what I'm going to do as my career, how much education I'm going to get, who I'm going to uh, live with for the rest of my life, uh, where am I going to live? Those macro scripts, but also micro scripts as well. We have micro scripts every single day. Every morning we wake up, and, and often some of us will just lie in bed and we'll go through our day for that day. We'll go through that script. What are we going to do? We're going to make some coffee. We're going to work out. We're going to read scripture. We're going to, whatever it is, go to work. We have micro scripts too. Stopping to get coffee at Starbucks. Your script might be, I hope there isn't a long line today. Uh, Your script for going to the doctor is that you hope just once that when you go to the doctor, the person behind that sliding glass window doesn't hand you the clipboard and have you update your information again, even though you did it the last time you were there. You're hoping that your script has none of that. All of us love our scripts and want our scripts to go as we plan them, but when our script is violated, that changes things. And when our script is violated in a bad way, we respond generally very negatively. Uh, This is where perseverance and patience and and steadfastness comes in and is helpful. But when our script is is, is violated in in a good way, we tend to celebrate. Now, Peter and, and John don't quite realize just yet that they should be able to celebrate that their script has been altered in this way. And we're going to see uh, that Mary is the same way eventually, that they don't really quite understand just yet what a great celebration this script violation is going to be, but we're going to see that. Their scripts have been violated in a good way. And I want you to start thinking about uh, your life now in terms of these scripts. What's your script? And are you ready to have your script violated in a good way? by the resurrected Christ, so important. So let me explain a little bit more about what's going on in this paragraph. Verse one, you know, the, 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 the closing of the tomb had been moved away, this big, this big, huge rock. Other gospels explain that it had been an angel of the Lord 
that had moved this stone away. Uh, and, and this stone has been estimated by most scholars to have weighed about 4,000 pounds, two tons. So there's no way some human being could have moved this stone, especially one who had just been recently crucified. That's not going to happen. Uh, this is God at work. And then verses 6 and 7, there is a ton of discussion and has been for years and years and years about the meaning of the details of the linens and the face cloth. Well, the isolated face cloth, apart from the linens, suggests that Jesus exited his wrappings, his death cloth wrappings, without disturbing the wrappings, which emphasizes his deity and perhaps adds a bit of dramatic effect to the fact that he was gone from the tomb. Also, John, the writer of this gospel, may have purposely set up a contrast here to Lazarus being raised. That's back in John chapter 11, where Lazarus has died. He's placed in the tomb. Jesus comes after four days, and, and, he, and he calls Lazarus out of the tomb. And Lazarus comes out of the tomb. Lazarus has been temporarily resurrected by this miracle. But when he comes out of the tomb, he still has his death cloths, his burial cloths around him as he comes out. So, so there's this contrast. Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus is what gives us life. Death cannot hold us in the resurrection of Jesus. Lazarus, though he was raised in that moment, he was still going to die again. Death was still going to have its victory over Lazarus. And that's why it was important that Lazarus and, and Mary put their faith in Jesus so that they could have this victory over physical death in eternity. Jesus came out of the tomb clean indicating that in Christ there is no more death. That's probably the most important message of today, and I hope you hear that. Further, scholars make the point that if his body had been stolen, as Mary supposes later on, whoever stole the body would not have gone to the trouble of unwrapping it first. What sense would there have been that in that? that? That just makes total sense. If they stole the body, they would have just taken the body. Hey, let's unwrap the body before we steal it. Let's really confuse things here. And that is why John the Baptist makes his pitch back in chapter 3, because John already understood where this Jesus thing was going in chapter 3. So let's go there now and reread that passage that Canoe read for us and talk a little bit about that. So John writes, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because the water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Uh, John the Baptist is put in prison eventually, and that's a whole other story that I'd love to be able to talk to you about someday, but we can't do it right now. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Verse 26 is kind of important and interesting. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, that would be Jesus, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride, the bride is the bridegroom. That would be Jesus, and, and, and the bride is the church. 
The friend of the bridegroom, that's John the Baptist, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So the big idea of this paragraph is understanding our place in light of who Jesus is. Jesus is Lord, Savior, Redeemer. In other words, we need to pursue being small. See, most of our scripts are about big, but God's script for us is small, not because he doesn't like us, not because he doesn't want us to try, not because he thinks that ambition is bad, not because we shouldn't uh, yearn for something that's better, but because he is the better. He is the big that we should be seeking, but we need to become small. We need to humble ourselves. We need to practice quietude in order to uh, be able to do that, to submit to Jesus and to embrace him. I've just found, and this is true of myself, I mean, just self-awareness sort of claims this. I've found that far too many of us desire that our greatness would be generated from our power and our privilege when it really should come from the grace of Jesus at the foot of the cross. We can be great, but that greatness needs to be found in Jesus. That's why Paul says in his letters, if I boast, I'm going to boast in Christ. I'm not going to boast in myself. So let's talk a little bit further about these verses. Uh, Verse 22, the baptisms that are going on. Uh, Baptism then, the idea behind baptism was repentance first. You had to repent first. You had to turn from your sin and acknowledge God and turn to God. And then the baptism itself uh, really symbolized purification from sin. You, You heard in that passage that they were having this conversation about purification. Uh, Today, when we baptized, when we baptize people, repentance still comes first, turning from our sin to Jesus, uh, giving our lives to Jesus, embracing Jesus. But now, baptism symbolizes our old unrighteous self being buried with Christ in the tomb and then being raised out of that tomb. That's That's the symbolism when you come up out of the water at your baptism, Uh, You're coming up out of the tomb of death because you are now victorious over death because you are in the resurrection of Christ. You have a new life in Christ. That's what baptism looks like today. And then verse 26, I mentioned this when we read it, uh, seems as though there was some jealousy of ministry going on, or at least people were trying to stir up some jealousy of ministry. Oh, you have a nice little church over here of 350 people, but your friend down the street has 500 people. What are you going to do about that? Mr. Pastor. And John handles it exactly the way he should have and the way we should as well. He points to Jesus and he says, Jesus must increase. He says, our happiness and our fulfillment doesn't come from worldly big numbers, but it comes from being in Christ. It comes from being small compared to Christ. In fact, I would argue that smallness rules. Just think about this, at least for a minute. Pursuing small takes off all the pressure. You know, we pursue big all the time, but we also complain about all the stress and anxiety and pressure that that creates in our lives. It takes off a lot of the pressure. Pursuing small also allows for relationships to be more genuine and more authentic. And pursuing small actually reduces what's been known as the suffering gap. The suffering gap is is an issue of scripts as well. Uh, I've seen... Uh, Dr. Henry Cloud talk about this. So he talks about how if, if I had a whiteboard here, I would draw a line really high up here, 
And that line would represent our ideal life, our fantasy life. If everything was just perfect, if we were the person we wanted to be, if we were with the people we wanted to be with, if we were doing what we wanted to do, and we were living exactly where we wanted to live. This, this ideal, this fantasy life is up here. But then down here, I would draw another line, and this line would go down here, maybe two and a half feet below the fantasy line, and this line down here is reality. This is actually where we're living. So the gap between the, the top line and the bottom line, that's the suffering gap. That's where we experience suffering in our lives. And, and, and it, so if you pursue smallness, if, here's how our founding pastor Tom Schrader used to say it. Put a lid on your dreams. Have dreams, but make them realistic. Uh, account for the fact that it's going to be hard. Account for the fact that there's going to be challenges and suffering and tribulation. Put a lid on your dreams. If we pursue smallness... It reduces the suffering gap. In fact, I would even also argue this. I talk about this a lot. It's amazing how often in Scripture you find John, you find Jesus, you find James, and you find Paul, all four of them, talking about how, you know, don't be surprised when suffering comes. Don't be surprised when, when tribulation comes. Don't be stunned. That life in this world is hard. Jesus has said, they've, they've all said this. But they also say the same thing. That's why you need Christ walking with you. So I would argue that the Christian faith is the only one in this world that adequately prepares us for a life of suffering. It's the only one that adequately prepares us for the reality of the challenges that we're going to have in this world. We're not sugarcoating anything. We're not doing this whole thing about if, if you can uh, conceive it and believe it, you can achieve it, which doesn't always work out. I'm six feet tall. I wanted to be a power forward in the NBA. No matter how much I conceived it and believed it, that was never going to happen. We need to understand that, that the reality of the Christian faith actually prepares us for this life in this world where there's sin and there's corruption and there's challenges and there's viruses, no faith, no worldview, no philosophy can prepare us the way Christianity can for suffering. So it reduces the suffering gap. In verse 27, John just goes right at it. He says, you know, Jesus is, is from above. He's from heaven. We're not. Jesus is above everything. We're not. We're, we're blessed that he came down and spent some time with us. Jesus is of heaven. We, were, we are born of this earth into sin. Jesus ultimately cannot be assessed by us by using earthly methods. Therefore, he is superior to John the Baptist. And John understands this, and he begins to teach it to people who would question him, and so must we. We need to understand it, and we need to teach it. If you go back to chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, in, in chapter 1, verse 15, John the Baptist even says, Jesus is the one of whom I said, he, comes, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So again, John understands the smallness that he should pursue, and that's the same smallness that you and I should be pursuing. You know, if we don't, Embrace humility and smallness. Don't be surprised when God does decide to humble you so that you can understand just how little control you really do have over the... I, I tend to think about Job in this manner. There's a book in the Old Testament, a long book, and it's a book about suffering and patience. It's called uh, Job. 
Uh, Job was just motoring along. He had a big life, a wonderful life. He was doing really, really well. And then all of a sudden, bam, Job has a very difficult season, a long and difficult season. Uh, Believe me, the worst possible things that could have happened to anybody happened to Job, and they all happened at once. Let me put it in terms maybe we can understand. This pandemic and this lockdown that we're all experiencing right now, this is a cakewalk compared to what Job went through. And Job went through a very long season of this, longer than we're probably going to have to go through. And yet Job demonstrated great patience and diligence during this time. But at the end of it, he really wanted to be able to ask God, why? What's going on here? And so towards the end of the book, chapters 38 through 41, this is where Job begins to be restored, and he thinks he's going to have some questions for God. But God comes to him and says, "Uh, before you ask your questions, I'll tell you what, let me ask you some questions first, and then we'll see if you have any questions at the end of that. And by the way, Job, you better, you better gird yourself up. You better protect yourself because I'm going to come right at you. And God start, starts by saying, where were you when I created all of this? Where were you when I hung the moon? Where were you when I put these mountains? In other words, where were you when I was being God? You're not God, Job. What right do you have to ask me questions? After four chapters of this, at the beginning of chapter 42, there's several verses of this, and I'm paraphrasing, but here's what Job says. Job says, all right, God, you're right. You are way bigger than I ever understood, and I'm way smaller than I thought. And that's an excellent lesson for me. And then verse 29, the talk of the bridegroom. The bridegroom identifies Jesus as the long-awaited king and Messiah. Israel is often depicted as God's bride in the Old Testament, which sets up John's insistence that he must be small because Jesus is all. And then in, in, in Revelation toward the end, again, Jesus is the bridegroom coming to marry his bride. And that would be us, the church. John is metaphorically Jesus' close friend and best man who selflessly rejoices for the groom and humbly serves the groom. If you're ever a best man in a wedding, you need to remember, it's not about you. It's not. Don't try to steal the show from the bride and the groom. Your job as the best man is to serve the groom and the bride in that moment and do it humbly and quietly. And that's what John is saying, to be small, to be quiet, to be humble. Smallness. Let me ask, has has the big that we have ever captured in our lives, some of us have captured big, but has it ever truly and lastingly fulfilled us? Has it sustained us? I mean, how quickly do we move on to the next big thing once we've captured that last big thing, and that next big thing is sure to be the one now that fulfills us. That last one, I thought it was going to fulfill me, but this one, it didn't fulfill me, but this one now, if I could get this one, it would fulfill, and it just doesn't. Why is it that when we get what we want, we are still found wanting? And I'll tell you why. It's very simple. It's because big overpromises and underdelivers. Big overpromises and underdelivers. John fully understands that the path to true life is by seeking to be small. Unfortunately, sometimes the world's view of humility is that if I'm clever enough, I can actually use humility, I can actually use, I can manipulate smallness as a path to bigness. So if I do embrace smallness, by decreasing, I can humbly increase my status, my popularity, and my profit. 
Smallness becomes for some people a mechanism to bigness, a methodology to ease, a tactic to the top, a system that eliminates the ordinary because none of us wants to be ordinary. You know, if you're bored with ordinary people, ordinary places and ordinary things, you are bored with the very things that God delights in. We need to understand that. And John further understands that even though he finds life in smallness, that smallness is not without pain and treachery because we live in a fallen and corrupt and a world that is a world that is unapologetic in its darkness. I mean, just unapologetic in its harshness, in its ruthlessness. But Jesus, Jesus says in the gospel of John, this very gospel that we're looking at, chapter 16, verse 33, he says, in this world, you are going to have trouble. You will have trouble. He doesn't hide that fact. He doesn't sugarcoat anything. But then he says, but take heart because I've overcome this world. I've overcome death. You need to place your faith in me, and you need to be small. Again, Christianity is great preparation for challenge, for suffering, and for tri- tribulation. So, so there's John saying we need to pursue and even practice smallness because Jesus is so big. And now we're going to move back to the rest of the resurrection story and put a bow on this story. So in your Bibles now, move back to John chapter 20. We're going to continue where we left off with that next paragraph, verses 18, uh, excuse me, 11 through 18. So the disciples already gone back to their home, Peter and John. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. She's weeping. She's lost Jesus uh, when he died on the cross, and now she's literally lost him. She has no idea where he is, and she hasn't figured out this resurrection thing yet. She hasn't put that together yet. She just thinks somebody has stolen the body nefariously. And, and as she wept, she stooped to look inside the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they've taken away my Lord. And I don't know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher, rabbi. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. So the big idea of this paragraph is reconciling your script with God's script and then living in God's reality and living in joy. Reconciling your script with the real script, God's script. This last paragraph shows us that our faith is not abstract, but it's personal. This was a tremendous act of grace and mercy and compassion and love that Jesus stuck around just for Mary and went and had this conversation. That just shows the tenderness and the beauty of Jesus that he came back to Mary. 
and that, that our faith is so personal that it's something that we can actually press into in a good way. And even though Jesus had talked about his resurrection to all of his disciples prior to this, it was so outlandish to actually conceive that it would be a possibility that it was actually happening that Mary simply had no frame of mind that would point her to the possibility that Jesus was actually alive. That she was experiencing the first Easter Sunday. And not just experiencing it, but Mary was a major player in the first Easter Sunday. But she finally did have her eyes open. I'll talk about that in a second. And that is a beautiful thing. That is a beautiful thing when God opens our eyes to the truth. When he opens our eyes to the beauty and joy that we can have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's also interesting, I've got to mention this, it's also interesting the weight that all four of the Gospels, John's included, give to the women as witnesses to the resurrection. If John and Matthew and Mark and Luke were fabricating this story, as many people try to assert, there is no way in their culture, in their context, in their history, there's no way that they would have used women as witnesses to this miraculous event. Because in their culture, women were not even allowed to testify in court. Nobody listened to them. They would have gone and found males to be witnesses if they were making all of this up. They would have only written about Peter and John and the rest of the male disciples. But they don't. The women play a huge part in this. The Christian faith does not discriminate against women. In fact, it it liberates women. It also liberates men. It liberates both men and women, and here's why. The reason is because the real problem is sin. Our problem isn't worldview. Our problem isn't wokeness. Our problem isn't politics. Our problem is sin, and all of us are on an even playing field when it comes to sin. That's our problem, and that's why Jesus liberates all of us and gives us true freedom and gives us true fulfillment. Now, why does she not recognize Jesus at first? Well, there's myriad possibilities. First of all, she'd been crying, so her eyes were probably a little bit clouded. Uh, Jesus also was the last person that she expected to see. My father passed away almost five years ago. If he walked in right now, I would swear it was somebody else. There's just no way. She didn't expect to see him. Uh, The early morning light was still bad, and they were inside the tomb where the light was worse. Uh, Also, Jesus looked nothing like the last time she saw him. Understand, he's now in his resurrected, glorious body. The last time she saw him, he had been beaten to within an inch of his life, and he had been crucified. So he looked completely different. And, 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 perhaps Jesus was just keeping her eyes closed until the right moment, because he is God. And how many times, and it's interesting, she heard him say Mary. How many times have you and I figured out a person's identity simply by their voice? It happens all the time when Jackie and I are sitting on the couch uh, or maybe at Harkins, Christown, watching a movie, and we see somebody, and we don't recognize them, but we recognize their voice. People can't really disguise their voice the way they can change their appearance. We recognize their voice, and the minute that happens, we're like, who is that? Who is that? The minute that happens, out comes our cell phones, and we're doing an internet movie database lookup because we want to see who that is. We're, we're curious about that. See, this is the voice of the shepherd. We talked about that a few weeks ago. This is the voice of the shepherd, Jesus, and he calls his people. And Jesus lays out his plans to Mary, and Mary gleefully goes and tells everyone else. And I am standing here today to gleefully tell you 
that I have embraced the resurrected Christ and he is my savior and he is my Lord and I have life in him and I am working at this project of pursuing small and I invite you to do the same thing. I invite you to a new script of smallness, of quietude, of humility. And believe me, this is not an anti-ambition message at all. Who was more ambitious than the Apostle Paul? And yet he understood how to also be small. He could do that. So what is your script? Do you need a new script today? Would you like to embrace a new script that's the real script? Here's God's script for us And we find it in Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. It's chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Paul writes this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has a script for us. Come to Jesus and embrace your script and be small. Let's pray together. Lord God, we do thank you for the resurrection. We thank you that that is our life. Your death and your defeat of that death is our life. And God, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would move and and your Holy Spirit would transform hearts and open minds to the truth of this beauty, to the truth of this gospel. I pray that now. I pray now that people would be stirring, that your Holy Spirit would be stirring up people so that they would pursue you, that they would understand that they have a new and joyous and fulfilling script in you. That's our prayer today, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen little prayer and benediction and blessing as we go. Thank you for joining us. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you all. Go and live all of life all for Jesus.